All right, guys, what's going on? So today I'm chatting with Mike Desher, and we're going to be talking about his process for individualizing training. So first off, I want to say thanks, Mike, for, for jumping on the podcast again. This will be uh, his second time appearing. His first one got a ton of great responses and continue actually to get uh, messages about it. So I'm really excited to have you back on. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, we actually, you know, you, you can maybe give like a, a little bit of an introduction. If any of you guys don't know who he is, you should probably just stop following me. But uh, for those <laughs> of you who don't, you know, um, maybe just tell a little bit about yourself. Uh, I guess my claims to fame are uh, founding reactive training systems. Uh, I'm the guy I can take credit for popularizing uh, RPE for barbell sports and the uh, you know, the RPE scale, like correlated to reps and reserve, at least on the high end. Um, you know, that was something that I, um, to my knowledge, invented <laughs> um, back in, you know, like the 2005, 2006 timeframe. And, um, you know, I was a, a good lifter at the time and competitive, so it helped it gain some traction. And, uh, you know, I like to think it's a useful tool as well, but, you know, more recently I've been focused more on uh, organization of training, individualization of training, which, you know, individualization in particular is a thread that's run through my whole career. You know, like if you consider like some of my early work and what I was talking about then with RPE and things like that, really the benefits of things like that are to individualization. It's it helps you tailor the training plan to fit the lifter, you know. And I would say that I've uh, continued to build on that idea, you know, and gone more in the. Uh, I guess more recently, spent a lot of time thinking about how to best organize training, uh, which has kind of led to emerging strategies and and all the things that we talk about there. So I suppose that's a, the high-level summary of what I've been up to the last decade. <laughs> awesome. So what are some of those key variables that you actually look to when you're, when you're attempting to individualize a program for an athlete? I don't take too much off the table, to be honest. I mean, I would say the only thing that's you know, non-negotiable I mean, I would hate to even put a label on that, but um, on some level is is pretty close to non-negotiable is we've got to train the competition movements at some point, you know. Um, usually that's, as, that's fairly frequently. I would say that I've got a somewhat of a, a frequency bias, at least compared to like old school powerlifting. You know, like if you look at, uh, what people, what powerlifters thought about frequency before, say, 2015, 2012, somewhere in there, you know, it was more in the realm of, you know, you train the competition lifts like once a week and then, you know, do a lot of assistance. And I would say that while most of my programs aren't terribly far off of that, uh, the selections that I have for uh, assistance, developmental exercises, preparatory exercises, things like that, uh, tend to be 
higher specificity movements, you know? So while I, I will write a program that trains the, the specific competition exercise multiple times a week. Um, my preference is more to, you know, have the competition lift itself in there once a week. And then we're doing specialized movement drills and things like that. That's absolutely not a non-negotiable. Uh, I'm not even sure that I would advise that. That's just a tendency that I've noticed in my own training and uh, in the, in the training that I write. You know, so uh, a lot of what I've learned is kind of observing observing what coaches, including myself, do in the real world and, and then kind of extrapolating from there. And so on a little bit more of like a granular level, I guess, um, what are some of those things that you are kind of paying attention to that maybe you're observing other coaches have done and then just through your experience you found to be effective? So for instance, um, I know some people like to set sort of volume targets and then progressively, you know, head in that direction. Other people like to um, maybe work up to certain RPE targets or like, you know, keep everything fixed and then just try and increase load while maintaining a certain RPE. Um, what, what are some of those things that you found to be relatively effective and uh, strategies you've implemented, just kind of broadly speaking? Sure. I guess maybe I should start with kind of the broad strokes framework of what emerging strategies is. And I hope this doesn't get boring for the people that have heard it before, but I think it's important to kind of a common ground uh, for moving forward. So in a typical emerging strategies program, we're going to write one microcycle of training. So think of it like one training week and that's on repeat, you know, so same exercises, same reps, same RPE, same sets. The weight on the bar will fluctuate a little bit based on the athlete's performance, but the idea is to deliver the same stimulus every microcycle, every week, you know? Um, you know, and, and we can kind of talk about some exceptions to that later, but I think that's a good place to start. So if you're say squatting competition exercise sets of five, you would squat sets of five, the same number of sets, the same number of reps, the same RPE, uh, at least attempting the same RPE uh, every week uh, for as long as your performance is improving. And you track that and you customize the length of the development block so that it matches the athlete's uh, performance adaptation. So if an athlete tends to get better in a training block for three weeks or five weeks or eight weeks, you match the athlete's response. Uh, and you'll see that that's kind of a theme through the whole thing. So what that does is it helps reduce the noise so we can see the signal more clearly. So if at the end of that development block, we look back on it and say, hey, that was a really good block compared to all the other blocks you've done, you know, maybe that tells us something about your response to those sets of five, or maybe it was the hack squats that we did as a preparatory exercise or something else, you know. Now, one block doesn't tell you a whole lot by itself, but as you start doing subsequent blocks, a picture starts to emerge, you know, and you start to see, hey, every time I 
have a development block that's between four and six reps at an eight RPE, I'd seem to get better. You know, blocks that contain single leg uh, movements tend to perform better than blocks that don't contain single leg movements. You'll start to notice things like that. And I like to use those observations as a basis for that individualization. So to answer your question more specifically, when you ask like what kinds of things might we individualize, again, I like to try not to take anything off the table. So it could be the frequency that we're training at. Maybe somebody, you know, needs to train a muscle group or a movement pattern or a microcycle frequency, you know, at, at different rates. It may be a set of exercises, maybe intensity or volume. You know, we can look at these things and, and kind of um, get an idea of what the athlete <clears throat> is going to respond best to. And then, I mean, we do use both our coaching experience and then just general knowledge uh, to help guide future decisions. I like to say that there's two different kinds of development blocks that you might run. You might run an exploring block where the intent is more to, to try something new um, or at least try something that's not, you know, well proven. Uh, maybe you only have one block that contains leg press, but it went well. So you might do another block just to see if it becomes, starts to become a trend. Um, so those are exploring blocks where your, your aim is to learn something new about the athlete, but learn something new by trying something that you expect to work. Uh, and then the other thing you can do is an exploit block where you go back through all the blocks that you've done and you more or less play your greatest hits. You find those things that are most correlated with high performance and you run those types of things kind of in a super block. And that's been really effective for us in terms of uh, peaking athletes really well uh, for competitions. Um, those exploring blocks are a time where you get to, to really explore the space uh, in terms of individualizing things. Now, it might be that, you know, you've tried a number of things and, and you're looking at it and you go, you know, I, I think they just need more volume. So you crank the, the volume up a little bit, uh, or you may watch their video and, and notice uh, some sort of tendency when the weight gets uh, past a certain, a certain load. Uh, so you prescribe a, a special developmental exercise to help correct that deficiency. You know, you can try all those things, but uh, I would say this process just takes seriously the possibility that you might be wrong. You know, that these things that we observe, we hope that they're right, but sometimes they're not. You know, sometimes you see somebody uh, with a chest fall pattern in the squat. Now, most people uh, respond pretty well to something like a pin squat, but you may have a lifter who just doesn't, and they seem to get better when you do pause squats, which is not typical. But if that's the response type for that specific athlete, they're going to think that's pretty important to know. So kind of monologuing a little bit, so <laughs> apologize for that, but feel free to direct me wherever you like. Yeah, no, I, that, that's great. And one of the follow-up questions that I do have, because this is a question I get a lot, and so I'm sure a lot of people are really wondering about it, 
is especially when you are working with kind of a fixed uh, volume load, so to speak, right? How do you how do you know where to start that off, right? Because if, if you do have more of a progressive volume structure, you know, something like uh, Chad Smith uses where mm-hmm. he starts off kind of on the lower end and then progressively increases it, you can kind of dial things in a little bit easier. So, so how do you know where to start? And especially how do you know where to start if someone maybe doesn't necessarily have a, a long history of training and and good uh, record keeping? Well, if they don't have too much history of training, I would say they're more... Sorry, like, I, meant, I meant more the record. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, even at that, like I've, I've worked with athletes. Uh, it might surprise you how many athletes don't have like a really extensive record of, you know, what they did and stuff like that. But I think if you look at just their last program, you know, you can ballpark what the stress of that program is going to be. Um, and we do have some calculations to help us uh, equate stress across different intensity zones. Um, so if you're looking at that, if you're looking at a person's stress index, you can think of it like kind of like number of hard sets, but um, you know, not all hard sets are created equal, right? Like a seven RPE set is not the same stress as a 10 RPE set, like that kind of thing. Um, like on a, on a rough level, that's what stress index is trying to account for. So if you're, if you just take their last program, then that can a lot of times provide a good basis to start. And I, I don't think that volume has to be, or, or training stress really, has to be dialed in super precisely in order to see any result whatsoever. And I find that a lot of lifters are really training a bit harder than they need to because we see pretty consistently that even reducing the workload can result in uh, 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 improvements in their strength output, you know, on a reasonably consistent basis, you know, and, and if it's, just for a couple blocks and then that starts to taper off, you're going to know, you know, so as a coach, let's say that you get a a new lifter that comes in and they're benching um, 18, uh, like a stress index of 18. So think of it like 18 hard working sets a week, you know. Um, Is that across all lifts? I would calculate it as, yeah, anything that's intended to train the bench press. Now, if you go hard in the direction of like isolation movements, then it gets a little funny. Uh, The model starts to, um, well, you just need to use a slightly different model is all. Um, But, you know, assuming that, you know, most powerlifters tend to prefer compound lifts and, and the isolation stuff isn't, a huge component of the program. Um, let's just say that, you know, their stress index is around 18, you know, 18 working sets a week. You know, I would start them out probably at that level, you know, and if it's, if it's a little bit high, then you'll know it pretty soon, you know, uh, and I would tend to bias it down rather than up. I would want to start a lifter off a little bit too low, in terms of stress, them too high. Uh, but, you know, if you start them off around an 18, 
it's probably going to be pretty close to right. Now, let's say that it, it's a little bit low. Um, you know, lot, like I said, lots of lifters, even if you back the stress off by a couple points, you know, they'll have a positive response to that. So then you get, you know, two development blocks down the road. You've had two good development blocks, and then the results start to taper off. Um, well, I mean, at that point, you can look at it and say, hey, they're recovering really well. You know, I kind of think they might need a little bit more volume, a little bit more uh, training stress. Then you can dial that up on the next development block. And it really doesn't cost you very much. I think kind of titrating it in uh, from one development block to the next um, gives you a lot of control over where the setting is at, you know. Are, are there any particular metrics that you or that you would use depending on uh, the athlete and just kind of how how they train? So, um, like you know, using velocity based training, or maybe someone really likes um, you know doing speed work, or another person really likes doing just like very frequent or what I would call frequent, like very high effort uh, sets from one week to the next. Yeah, yeah, I really like to take all that stuff into account. You know, like from my perspective, nobody has trained that athlete longer than than they have. You know, they've been with themselves for every set that they've ever done. You know, so they probably have something important to say about training. And if I, unless I have good reason to to discount that perception. I want to go with their perception by default, you know? So if they say it's speed work or they say it's, you know, benching every day, then all right, we'll try it, you know, but we'll also try other things as well, you know, and we're going to follow the trail of athlete response. So, um, you know, we may start off, you know, let's say, let's take an example of uh, you mentioned speed work. You got an athlete that that's really bought into uh, doing uh, some dynamic effort stuff. So let's say that you start out doing some dynamic effort stuff uh, in your first development block, your first couple development blocks. Uh, but then you know you talk them into getting away from it for just one block, uh, so you can fit in some additional hypertrophy work or something like that. Well, if that goes really well, you may try something else similar. You know. Uh, or if it doesn't go well, maybe you go back to what was working. Um, and over time, you start to paint this picture of, hey, when we've had our best responses in the bench press, it's been when we included speed work, you know, you were right. Or when we haven't included speed work, in which case I'd say, hey, I, I know that you like this speed work thing, but it doesn't seem to be associated with your best training blocks. Now, interestingly enough, I've not had to have too many conversations like that. I think lifters start to develop a sense of, you know, hey, when I'm doing X, my bench is improving, my deadlift is improving, you know, they start to develop a sense of that, which is another reason why I take it seriously. It's not the end of the conversation, but it is important information. And so how long would you give an exercise or maybe even a, a different strategy before 
you know, either validating it or, or saying, you know what, I think I've seen enough. I don't necessarily think this is contributing. Like what kind of timeline are you looking at? It kind of depends on, on the movement. Um, if it's something that I've seen work a lot, like let's say pin squats or pause bench, you know, something like that. Um, I'll probably try it a bunch, you know, and you know, if, but if it's still not producing after four or five training blocks, you know, then I'll probably give it, try something else, let that one go. You know, if it's something that's a little more hit and miss, like slow eccentric deadlifts, you know, some people have responded great to it. Other people have really not gotten anything out of it at all. So if I try it with somebody and after two blocks, we haven't managed to, to get a hit on it, then it's not that I'll never try it again. It's just that I'm going to start being more reluctant to try it. I'm going to need a reason to try it again. Um, so, you know, I think just trying some random things now and then is not terrible. Sometimes, you know, if you only rely on your own, you know, prefrontal cortex, rational explanation of all things in the training process, then you're going to get a fairly limited number of, of outputs. You know, and there are people who seem to be getting stronger doing training that leaves me scratching my head that I go, I would have never thought that would work, you know, yet here they are. So in order to kind of leave myself open to that possibility, I like to at least have the option to, you know, just try something because it seems like a good idea. You know, we'd, it doesn't always have to follow this process of we have a a tendency in the bench press to mess up the bar path when the weight gets too heavy therefore we need to select from this list of exercises that tend to emphasize bar path placement you know like that's great and that gives you a lot of direction you know and i would say those are more high probability things to try and that's great but sometimes you're pretty far out from competition you know, maybe the athlete is a little less focused on, you know, drive up the comp lifts at all costs right now. And they, you know, of course, every athlete wants to get better, you know, but if you're far away from competition and you're thinking, you know, I saw a video of Larry wheels doing some dumbbell incline and that just looks fun to me, then throw it in there, see what happens. You know, it might, it might be a really good block. Now, why? Maybe it's because of something mechanical. Maybe it's just because the athlete's having a good time in their training. And I think that's a valid reason too. You don't lose pounds off your total because, oh, well, you only did that because it was fun. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, a rational training choice. So we're going to take 20 pounds off your total, you know? So, I mean, if, if you do something because it's fun and then it makes you stronger, you still got stronger. So, Yeah. I suppose I'm making a case for occasionally injecting a little bit of just try it because it seems fun into your training. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I also think there's a, maybe even a difference in just kind of definition, right? Like when you say random versus 
what someone else means when they say random, I think a lot of the times can be construed in very different ways. That's um, fair, yeah. You know, because like, I, I actually had this conversation with uh, a client not too long ago and essentially I was saying that a lot of their accessory exercises and I guess I'll kind of like create an objective, like a operational definition. So I'll say like, we have our primary lift, which would be like, you know, competition lift, and then maybe a secondary, which is a pretty close derivative. So like deadlift versus a block deadlift or a deficit pull or something like that. And then, you know, you have your, um, your, your accessories that can range from a little bit more specific to very just completely general. So the more specific might be like a belt squat and then uh, other accessories might just be like a split squat or lat pull down or something like that. And so I was talking to them about um, accessories, like the, the very general ones. And I was like, yeah, those don't really contribute a whole lot to your actual performance in uh, so to your strength. You know what I mean? Like you bring, you bring up your lat pull down, your deadlift isn't really going to go up, you know? And they're like, well, then why are we doing it? And I was like, well, well, well because they, they asked me, sorry, uh, to kind of backtrack, they were asking me about which should they do? Should they do a pen lay row or should they do this? And I was like, it really doesn't matter. It's not really going to make that much of a difference. You know, you can just kind of pick whatever. We're just doing it to like build muscle and maintain good general fitness and things like that. And they were like, well, why are we doing it? And, and I kind of realized like, I was like, oh, they don't understand when I say it doesn't matter. They don't understand why we're doing it because our definitions <laughs> were just kind of different. And so that was just something that kind of came to mind when you were, when you were talking yeah. about it as well. But, oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. And I mean, some things kind of don't matter, you know, like I've noticed in some athletes that like our high probability movements for squatting might be, you know, might be Bulgarian split squats or lunges, reverse lunges. It kind of doesn't matter as long as it's a single leg movement or like you, sometimes I'll see something similar with triceps movements in the bench press, you know, they just need triceps development or single leg movements or whatever the case might be, you know, same with lat movements. Um, sometimes it does seem to seem to be specific to an exercise and I can't really explain it, you know? Um, and I think, we have to take that seriously and also take seriously like what the movement might not be doing, not just what it is doing. Right. So like if you take, for example, the penlay row versus say a dumbbell row, you know, they're both rows. They're both more or less training the same musculature. The musculature is not really a prime mover for any of the power lifts, but uh, I tend to see it mostly correlated to uh, success in the in the deadlift. Um, but one reason why someone might respond better to a dumbbell row uh, would might be that the penlay row presents too much uh, too much stress on like lower back uh, musculature, or it might be that they don't respond. Let me rephrase that. They might respond better to the penlay row because it's an additional stressor on, you know, the low back and the glutes uh, in in isometric uh, fashion, and that becomes like a positive stimulus. So, 
I mean, it might be what the movement's not doing as much as what it is, what it is doing, you know? Yeah, no, that's a good point because specifically with Penley rows, I used to do them all the time, but now I do mm -hmm. a bunch of other um, exercises. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I find that by the time I get to Penley rows, my back is just so toast that I can't row anything. Like I, I, I do mostly like supported rows or like pull downs or something like that. Or maybe like a T-bar mm -hmm. row that's a little little better on my back because mm -hmm. or else I just like I get no lat development and it's just like the craziest low back pump and then when I'm walking <laughs> home, I just like <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that brings me to uh, kind of the next question I had actually about the length of uh, the block. So I know you've talked quite a bit about the different types of athletes that usually encounter um, that determine the length of a block. But I wanted to know a little bit more about some of those individuals who are doing really well and then kind of stall out for a bit and then have almost like a second win where they see another uh, peak in performance. Because recently, actually, I had my first athlete who kind of followed that trend line. And it was it was really weird because I'd never experienced anything like that before. It's, it's usually pretty basic, you know, mm -hmm. you, you train them as long as they, you know, perform. And then once they stop, you deload them and that's their typical length of the cycle. And this is the first time I ever experienced anything like that. And so um, how, how would you even identify that in the first place? Because it seems pretty tricky. Yeah. Um, I wonder if there's not, I, I think it can be a case by case thing, right? Like. <clears throat> I talk on occasion about um, Liz Craven. She was one of the first people I tried this style of training with. Um, one of the things that we noticed with her, um, she's getting ready for a competition. I forget which one it was. Uh, it was a big competition, a lot of pressure for her. And um, we're getting ready for it. And it's like the... You know, she's like, what? We were doing a 2x frequency. So I think she was like two weeks out from competition, has a bad session, and is kind of in her head about it a little bit. Um, it, it happens, you know, but, uh, you know, she came back and was saying, hey, you know, this was a pretty bad session. How should we adjust the plan based on, based on what just happened? And I was able to go back to the training data, you know, and, and show her like, this is normal for you. So she always had two sessions improving and then one session, like one bad session. So like two up, one down, two up, one down. And that just happened to be a down session. Now you can handle a down session when you're, you know, eight, 10 weeks out, you know, it starts to, seem a lot more significant when you're two weeks out. Um, however, it's still normal, you know, and because I had that training data, I was able to, you know, show it to her and say, look, this is normal for you. This is a normal down session. We've got two sessions left. So the next session will be better. And then the last session is our, is the competition. That's going to be at a peak, you know, and sure enough, that's how it went. Now, the reasons why, I mean, I think in her case, when you're faced with a 
with a pattern that's like that, I think it's got to be fatigue related on some level. It just seems like a fatigue pattern. But, um, you know, you could end up with a more like one-off bad session. Um, I will say that more recently, I've started to think about like mechanisms behind the time to peak issue and stuff like that. I'm not sure that it's adaptation in the physiological sense of adaptation. It might just be athlete boredom, you know, that you're doing the same thing uh, week in, week out. And as long as you're getting stronger, it seems interesting. It seems engaging, fun, you know, but then when you stop getting stronger, a lot of people report that, you know, all of a sudden this repeating everything uh, gets really boring really fast, you know? Um, so if I had a lifter who, I, I should say that not everybody experiences like that, you know, palpable boredom, you know, it's not like everybody has the same psychological experience around that. But I think there might be something to it, you know, even for the people that are less aware of it. That doesn't mean we should ignore it or we should do something differently about that in particular. But I do think that, you know, if we're talking about mechanisms, that's one potential mechanism and probably a, a meaningful candidate to explain the time to peak thing. Um, so, I mean, there, there's a, a few different factors. You may just have like a one-off bad session uh, that the athlete comes back from. There could be some sort of like recurring uh, recovery issue. Like maybe Monday sessions are just bad sessions in general uh, because, you know, uh, um, partying over the weekend or something like that. Or like if you're doing a 2X frequency, it could be that, you know, you're Thursday session is a bad session because it's only one day of rest instead of two, you know, there's different explanations for stuff like that. But I think the, like in a well-constructed development block, the reason that it finally comes to an end is progress slows and the athlete starts to get bored with that stimulus. So, I mean, so you change up the stimulus, big deal. And so when you are looking at your deload, like let's say it takes um, an athlete five weeks and their fifth week is their last week of really productive training. And then on the sixth week is really where you start to see that, um, you know, degradation of, of performance. When you're actually peaking the athlete for a meet or actually even just during training, would you go five weeks of productive training and then deload? Or would you go four weeks of training and then deload because then technically they're still in their peak on that fifth week? Like, how would you run that both from a block to block standpoint and then also when you're peaking someone for, for a competition? From a block to block standpoint, I would want them to do the highest performance session, uh, highest performance week. And then we can start the deload after that. You know, no need to to go past it, but I do think there's some value in actually executing that peak performance session. Um, if you're peaking into a competition, 
You just want to make sure that you place that peak performance session on the day of competition and then work backwards from there. And so when you're, um, when you're actually running your deloads, what does that look like for you? Like, how are you actually augmenting? Do you, do you change the exercises? Do you keep things the same? Do you just reduce the volume? Like how, how do you actually go about doing that? The standard approach is to change everything. Um, you would change exercises, the, the weekly structure, the volume, the stress, you know, you reduce the stress by about half and the length of the, the deload, the pivot is, um, about a third of the length of the development cycle. So if your development cycle was six weeks, your pivot's going to be two weeks. Um, something along those lines is uh, is a good place to start. Now, what you'll find is that some people will lose too much strength if you do that. You know, so if you go from if you go that far away from what they respond well to, you know, you're reducing the workload, you're doing uh, lower intensity, high rep stuff, you're doing less specific exercises. Some people are fine, and then some people lose strength fairly rapidly. So if you're losing too much strength, too much being defined as if you're spending most of your next development cycle kind of regaining lost ground, then it's not really what you want. So um, if you find that you're losing too much strength during the pivots, uh, you need to do a better job of balancing, you know, the, the kind of opposing goals of maintaining strength and, you know, reducing fatigue and restoring sensitivity to training. So um, you may want to reduce intensity and change the exercises and stuff like that, but maybe you don't reduce the intensity quite so much, or maybe you keep the exercises a little more specific, or you keep a little bit more of the volume or some combination uh, of those things in there so that you can maintain strength a little bit better. But again, it's this trade-off between trying to maintain your strength and trying to uh, reduce the fatigue and the restore sensitivity to training. So you're going to lose a little bit. It's not reasonable to, to try to maintain peak condition all the time. I mean, where do you go from there? So you've got to come down a little bit, but you just don't want to come down so much that you end up spending the whole next development block regaining lost ground. And so, so just to clarify, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, decent starting point is a pivot block or a deload that's one third, roughly one third the length of the, okay, great. Right. Awesome. And what kind of process do you use to actually select exercises for your lifters? For the development blocks or the pivots? Um, well, both, I guess, both. Uh, the, the pivots are a little more loose, I would say. Um, we kind of have uh, some stock ideas of what a pivot might be, and that's usually a good place to start, and, and you can deviate from there. Um, things like high bar squats and single leg work, overhead press, and, you know, change your stance, change your grip, change, you know, do some, like, hardcore bodybuilding stuff for a while, or, you know, do something different. Try to get out of the same planes of movement. Try to not train the same pattern of movement over and over and over. Okay. The goal of the pivot is not developing your sport performance. The goal of the pivot is 
to do everything else that you need to be a functional, healthy human being uh, that you're neglecting during your development cycles because during your development cycles, you've got this single-minded focus on sport performance. You know, So development cycles tend to be like single-minded focus on sport performance uh, to the exclusion of everything else. Um, and sorry about the phone, but um, to the exclusion of everything else and, and other things get left on the back burner. So a pivot is a great time to put those things in the program. It helps you be durable. It helps you uh, handle the, the development cycles well. Um, so yeah, so that, that's kind of the pivot. And, and again, from there, you would deviate kind of based on what you see. Pivots are a little bit tough because it's a second level operation. You know, the development cycles are a little more straightforward because you you put something in the program and it either makes you better or it doesn't, you know. And you can start to paint that picture over multiple blocks. Um, but for for the most part, it's it's, you know, training intervention, and then did it make you stronger or not? You know, it's it's pretty simple correlation at that point. The pivots are a little more complicated because the training still should make you stronger, but not directly. You know, the pivot, you're not gonna be stronger after your pivot, but what you might, you, what you might notice is that a well done pivot uh, can help facilitate the next training block. You'll be a little more responsive uh, to the training uh, or you'll be a little bit healthier, you know, a little more durable, something like that, you know, and, and so the next development block might go a little bit better. So it's a little bit harder to dial in the pivots. It's no less important, I would say. It's just more difficult. The exercise selection for the development blocks, like I said, is a lot more straightforward. You know, you can start with movement analysis or, you know, what's worked in the past or, you know, just your favorite exercises even and start to build up this database of what's working in real, like in, in reality, you know, uh, you're going to want to change exercises uh, between development blocks. So for the most part, you know, as, as much as is reasonable, you try not to run the same exercises for uh, like sequential development blocks. You try to break them up a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've done all of those things, you know, lifters request an exercise, we'll try to put it in there. Uh, I'll do a movement analysis and say, you know, well, they are showing this deficiency or that deficiency. And I've, I find that, you know, pause deadlifts or uh, deadlifts with chains or whatever, uh, tend to address that. So we give it a try and see if it works for that person. You know, something else that you'll notice is that there's multiple ways to address a given problem, like a given movement deficiency. The chest fall and squat, uh, you could do pin squats. You could also do safety bar squats or high bar squats or front squats. There's a bunch of different ways you could address it. And then it becomes a matter of which way does the athlete respond best? You know, you may find that most people do great with pen squats, but this one individual doesn't for whatever reason. Uh, so safety bar squats work better, you know, so things like that. 
how about when you're working with women who might see performance uh, or a decrease in performance depending on where they're at in their monthly cycle? Because um, I know I've worked with athletes like that. I'm, I'm sure you have as well. How do you manage training blocks like that? And how does that impact the actual structure of their um, of their mesocycle? I haven't had the issue with a, an emerging strategies framework, to be honest. Um, before I implemented that framework, I would occasionally come across the issue. It tended to not be so much in terms of performance as much as it was in um, like a few athletes noted that they felt like they were a little bit more injury prone during certain weeks. Uh, so we would pre-plan deloads during those weeks. But once we like took those same athletes and once we started running an emerging strategy cycle, it didn't really come up. Now, I mean, full disclosure, it might just be that they didn't bring it up, you know? So yeah, it could be just a, a limitation in the information that's available to me. Um, yeah, it would be something to consider for sure. And I don't see, sorry, just to kind of conclude on that idea. I don't see an issue with kind of preempting some training changes. It also might just end up built into the program too, right? So if you've got somebody uh, who has a down performance every fourth week, then that may start to look like a three week time to peak, which I suppose it wouldn't, it, it could for a little while, but it wouldn't if you ever adjusted that, that timing, right? Um, because if you adjust your timing for a, a competition, you know, all of a sudden that, that sequence is going to be off. So, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. That's something that hasn't come up with me specifically. So, I wish I had a better answer for you. <laughs> no, it's all good. I, I think most of the women that I've coached don't seem to have that problem. Uh, but I have had two or three that like significantly weaker on, mm -hmm. you know, during, during a very specific part of, of their cycle, mm -hmm. um, like 70% for a triple would be like a grinder kind of week. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's pretty rare, but I, I have seen it happen a couple of times. So I was just wondering if you had any experience with that, but, um, yeah. So I, I want to take your input on how you would go about bringing up, uh, maybe a weak lift. So if someone has like a really big squat and a really big deadlift, but their bench is kind of struggling, how would you invest more energy and more time into that lift without, you know, maybe detracting from some of the other lifts? Well, you're going to need to balance your overall stress. You know, there's only so much stress that an athlete can recover from. And there's only so much stress that, you know, a certain set of tissues can handle. So, you know, the squat and the deadlift compete for resources to a significant degree. So if uh, you wanted to apply more training stress to the squat, you may find that you've got to reduce the deadlift workload a little bit. Uh, and that's where stress index can come in 
uh, fairly handy. You know, so if they're running a, a say a 20 lower body stress, you know, kind of my default would be to split that uh, 10 for squat and 10 for deadlift, you know, but you may find that a lifter doesn't need 10 for the deadlift. They need seven. So uh, you may reallocate that for, uh, you know, it's 13 for the squat and seven for the deadlift. Or, you know, it is possible that, um, you know, although they responded to 20, they might respond a little bit better at 17, you know, so 10 for the squat and seven for the deadlift, you know, and that's another instance where, you know, are they responding like say that you're running uh, 10 stress for the deadlift, uh, but then you take out that the RDLs that are in the preparatory slot and you sub in dumbbell rows. And all of a sudden you go from a 10 stress for the deadlift to a seven stress for the deadlift and they respond better. Are they responding to the dumbbell rows or are they responding to the seven overall stress? Well, I mean, you can start to paint a picture uh, given enough training blocks, but it may not it may not be super clear in the beginning, but that's okay. You still know that one of those things is resulting in a better overall response. So, you know, you include it in uh, in your exploit programs. Right. And so, how many of those um, exploration programs might you do? let's say in a given year, or like I would under, I would imagine that's kind of dependent on what their competitive cycle looks like. Yeah, definitely. So in a year like last year, most of my lifters did explore blocks most of the year, you know, like if, man, it was nuts. But um, even then, like you've done a, you've done a number of exploration blocks, you know, it's starting to feel like, um, you know, time to put it all together, then you may just run an exploit block just for the fun of it. Um, but I've had a handful of athletes who like to compete and, and so they'll compete often. And I've had to tell them like, look, you need to take a break from competing because all we're doing is, you know, we'll do like two exploit blocks and a comp, two exploit blocks and a comp. And so all we're doing is repeating the same training over and over, which, works until it doesn't, you know, so we need some time to explore the space and see if there's anything else out there that's, that's useful. And if it doesn't do anything else, it gives us a break from just hammering that same stimulus over and over. So, uh, you know, when we do come back to it, it's at least functional, you know. I really like that too, because it's almost preemptive in a way, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, there, there have been things where I know like two or three exercises are going to work really well for my athlete. Yeah. I haven't even done it with them yet because there's no need. Everything that I'm doing right now, like just keeps working. And so it's like, let's just milk it. But yeah, like you were saying, it almost kind of has this like preemptive um, uh, benefit as well, where it's like, okay, if for some reason, you know, whatever we're doing stops working, then at least we know that we have, you know, these specific exercises and we have these potential, you know, loading strategies that we can implement and we saw a really good success before. And so it's very likely that we can shorten the amount of downtime between, um, you know, stagnation and, and the next right. 
productive training cycle. So I really like how you frame that actually. Um, oh man, I had, I had a question that I wanted to go on, but kind of slipped my mind. Yeah. The last year was kind of crazy. I had, uh, I had three athletes actually who were going to compete at two different competitions. And in both instances, uh, the night before the, the night before the meet, the, the meet was canceled. Night before. Wow. Before, yeah. They got, yeah. they got an email at like 5 PM and I was just like, are you serious? And in one of them, in one of them, they actually didn't cancel it. They rescheduled it for later that month. And I was like, okay, so now all of the athletes are just supposed to maintain their peak for a month. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. It reminds me I had, a, I went to a competition one time. This was years ago and you know, our session was supposed to start at 10 in the morning and uh, the meet director came back and he says, yeah, you know, this session's supposed to start at 10, but you know, if you're having a hard time getting warmed up and you need some more time, just let me know and we'll push you back a little bit. And I was, I was like, that's thrown off my entire warm up strategy. Like I need to be able to count on the start time, you know, so I can time my warm ups appropriately. You can't just have a floating start time. You can't have a floating competition. Eh, we'll compete whenever, sometime this month, you know? Yeah, that happened at, uh, that happened to one of my athletes at Worlds uh, 2019, I think. Um, we had a start time set, but then they didn't have the uh, the board in, like they didn't they didn't have the actual athletes board where it's like, okay, here's the lineup of the lifters, and so we can see their ranking. No one could see, so no one knew, and we'd ask, no, they wouldn't show you. So we're just like, <laughs> I guess we're just guessing. So we all started warming up. And most of the athletes were warm about 45 minutes prior. Like they'd done their last set 45 minutes prior. My, my girl too, same thing. She did her last set like 45 minutes too early because no one had any idea. And it was like, okay, better safe than sorry kind of thing. And uh, I, I don't think too many people had major issues. Actually, I think everyone kind of did pretty well, but it was, it was a bit of a nightmare working up mm. to it, that's for sure. <laughs> I would be an anxious wreck. If I oh, was God. competing in that situation. Yeah, I know. I, I was as a coach. and like, I'm just trying. I'm like, oh, no, you're fine. Don't worry. You're all good. But then in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, my God, this is terrible. <laughs> this is the worst thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one, uh, one thing that I actually did want to know about was determining frequency for, for the different lifts. And so, you know, I know... Uh, a lot of big guys have a really um, successful time with like a 1.5 times frequency. So, you know, like a, a squat and then maybe like a deadlift derivative and then on their deadlift day, a squat derivative um, and something like that. And so how, how do you determine the frequency of a, of a lifter? And also how would you maybe evaluate whether or not it's time to, to increase the frequency for, for a given lifter, even if they have been doing pretty well with, with uh, you know, whatever they're doing at the moment? I mean, I think a lot of it's probably uh, similar signals to what you're what you're evaluating as well. You know, like if there's recovery issues, you know, we may you may think that uh, well, let's try something a little bit lower frequency. You know, and, and usually the details matter. You know that uh, you know, hey, I'm I'm noticing that when I do competition squats. Uh, my back is sore for, 
you know, an excessive amount of time, but that's not the case with the SDE movements. Okay, well, maybe we should just try competition squatting a little less frequently or, you know, it, it, it's usually problem and then come up with a specific solution to that problem and, and see if it works. And from there, follow the trail of athlete response, you know? So I would imagine that it's a similar process to the one that you're using already. Um, what most most coaches would do already. It's just that there's, I think there ought to be uh, an additional step of checking it thoroughly to see if we're wrong, you know, that it could be that, uh, uh, you know, reducing that frequency helps, but, you know, we've been wrong about these things in the past, so it's worth checking. Uh, now, let's say you reduce their frequency for a little while, things are going well, how do you know when it's time to increase it again? Probably the same way that you would know, you know, for anyone else that it's time to increase frequency. Sessions are starting to get a bit too long or, you know, they're feeling technically rusty uh, between, between sessions. You know, the, just some indication that, hey, we're going a little bit too long. So what, what happens? Like, how do we combine this into uh, something that's a little bit more frequent. Like, do we have to reduce the stress? Do we have to, you know, manage the type of stress? You'll notice that some people respond better to like low RPE training or high RPE training. Um, some people get beat up from higher intensities or, you know, higher volumes. It, it's just different. So paying attention to what that athlete's specific experience is like, and then just, you know, see the problem that the athlete's got and implement a fix for that thing in particular, you know, and then test it to see if it worked. You know, I think that's kind of the, the main, the main takeaway from most of the emerging strategy stuff. I, I really liked a lot of the stuff that you, you mentioned. I feel like, you gave tons of specifics for people who are a little bit more inquisitive about training to, to really go and kind of uh, put pen to paper and, and come up with some really interesting training blocks. Um, are you, do you have any projects on the go? Is there anything that you wanted to kind of shout out real quick? Oh man, always so much that we're working on. <laughs> but, uh, nothing that's like right now, you know, needs to be uh, talked up, I think, but uh, you know, I will say that we uh, try to put out as much information on this type of thing as we can. Uh, a lot of it's on our YouTube channel, uh, just the Reactor Training Systems YouTube channel. Um, and we also teach a class on uh, this emerging strategies process as well. And it's a real deep dive class. Uh, we start out with all the, the fundamentals and then go as deep as I can take it, you know. Um, we get into specifics. I share a lot of specific strategies that I've implemented with athletes. We, uh, you know, and eventually uh, after the, you know, we cover as much theory as is necessary. We have case studies that we go over with specific athletes and uh, specific interventions that coaches have made with those athletes and, and so on. So uh, I'm pretty proud of the classroom that we've put together on all this. Awesome, man. So I actually did have a question about the classroom. Is that mm -hmm. something that is set at a particular time or is it like a digital course that 
you can kind of do at your own pace. How, how does that work? At the moment, it's a, uh, it, there's a particular time. We have classroom openings uh, once a quarter. However, um, we're in the process of kind of reworking a lot of that so that it's in a, in a more open, more accessible format. Right. Um, so yeah, more to follow on that. Uh, always lots of work to be done, but uh, I'm grateful to be able to do it. That's exciting, man. Yeah. Awesome. So, so where can people find you? Um, for me personally, uh, probably Instagram's the best place. It's just at Mike Tushier. Uh, and then anywhere you can find reactive training systems, uh, YouTube is pretty active. Instagram is active there as well. And then, uh, reactive training systems.com. Uh, one thing that you'll find there is, uh, if you log in and click on apps, we have a free web app, uh, for people to log their training. So if all this stuff sounds interesting to you, there's a whole bunch of web tools, uh, in that training log that are designed to help you through this process. You know, so you can log your training, then you can run block reviews on that training and then meta block reviews on that. And those reviews help analyze your training log data and show you, hey, yeah, it's Bulgarian split squats that you're responding well to, or it's uh, hack squats, or actually it's any single leg movement, or, you know, uh, it tries to make those relationships a little bit more plain. Um, so that's, uh, that's something that's available. And, uh, and we're in development for some coaching tools on that as well. Uh, I'm not quite sure when the release date uh, for that will be, but it's getting in the coming soon category at this point. So, um, you know, keep an eye out for that, you know, for coaches who would like to implement those types of tools uh, with their athletes too. Uh, we're working on having some solutions available for people. That's awesome. Sounds like a really, uh, some really exciting projects going on. Yeah. So everyone, all that stuff is going to be down in the show notes. Definitely go make sure you check them out. Also, he's got a podcast. I'll link that up in there as well. Uh, they're always putting up really, really interesting chats on, uh, well, this stuff and a whole variety of different things. So make sure you check it out. Make sure you subscribe. Also make sure you subscribe to my podcast and give me a five-star review and share it with your friends. And so I can keep putting on uh, awesome content and afford to pay these guys millions of dollars to come on my show. <laughs> also, if you guys do have any questions, make sure you hit me up on Instagram. That's where I'm most active. Um, if you have any questions, I'm always uh, answering people's questions. So feel free to hit me up. Just say hi and, uh, you know, we'll chat. Anyways, Mike, thank you so much for jumping on, man. It was an awesome chat. Appreciate you having on. Good chat, Matthew.